Welcome to the podcast of the United Church of Bogota. We are a Bible-based church ministering to the English-speaking community in Bogota, Colombia. We invite you to join our diverse fellowship as we encounter God in worship and experience the impact of His grace on every part of our lives and in our world. To learn more, please visit our website at ucbogota.org. Good morning again, everybody. Uh, This morning, I want you to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 9. We're going to look at verses 1 through 13. Keep a finger there because we'll be in and out of that passage uh, throughout the sermon. Um, Sometimes it's easier to not talk about Bruno, right? Um, And let's just admit there are parts of the Scriptures that it would be easier just to skip over. Had a little bit of that last week. We've got a little bit of that this week. We'll have a lot of bit of that next week. Um, but my job, Baxley's job, the elders of your church, our job is not to skip things that are hard to talk about, um, but it's to say, hey, God, you in all of your grace and goodness have preserved this word for us and given it to us. Um, and so we're not just going to skip around the parts that make us feel a little uncomfortable. So that's the disclaimer this morning. We're jumping back into Romans We're picking up uh, Romans 9, and we're going to spend the next few weeks in Romans 9, and it's going to make you uncomfortable, and it makes me uncomfortable, and um, I think that it makes us uncomfortable because of something marvelous that happens here. The marvelous thing is this, we get to peek behind the curtain and see, get a glimpse of the very mind of our God, and wow, And so, that's incredible. That's a huge honor. But it means two things. It means, first, we don't understand everything we're about to see and talk about. We don't. And that makes uh, like people like us from our sorts of cultural backgrounds, that makes us feel very uncomfortable to not be able to explain everything we see in front of us. And second, as we look at the mind of God, it becomes pretty clear to us that He is big and we are small and we are not in control which also freaks us out, right? Because we like to be in control. Um, but, but our job is uh, to sit under God's word. And I think if we're going to learn anything from Romans chapter 9, even though it will make us uncomfortable, if not today, then, then next week, uh, it'll be because we have assumed the posture of humility. We've come at this as, as learners, saying, God, um, I don't understand everything that you understand, so please, God, teach me what I need to know. And God, I am not in control, and that's actually not a bad thing, that's a good thing, but please, by your Spirit, help me to trust you. So there's my disclaimer. We're going to jump into this, but I'm going to pray and ask God to do those things. Lord, um, you know and we don't know. And as we encounter mystery in your holy scriptures, we ask you, Lord, to please teach us by your spirit, uh, our feeble minds with all of our biases and other things. Um, teach us the things that we need to know, Lord, about you and about your plan of salvation for people like us. And Lord, you are big and we are little. You are in control and we are not. Would you, by your Holy Spirit, sow seeds of trust in you as we come to this part of your holy scriptures, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. 
So it was 1979, November the 4th, and a group of militant uh, Iranian students had just seized the U.S. Embassy in Tehran. Um, The militants took 52 U.S. citizens captive, most of whom were working uh, in the U.S. Embassy there, like some of you do here. They took them captive, and this became known, of course, as the Iranian hostage crisis. It would last 444 days. In that span of time, the world wondered, especially my country wondered, what would President Carter do to rescue these captives? Well, months went on, he failed to reach a diplomatic solution, and so he tried to rescue his people through this special military operation, an operation that was called Operation Eagle Claw. The thing was dead as soon as it started. Um, Three of the eight helicopters had mechanical problems, and so he canceled the mission, he called it off. To make matters worse, as one of the helicopters was refueling, it collided with a C-130, causing a big explosion and robbing eight servicemen of their lives. Total tragedy. The next day, um, President Carter addresses the nation. And he says, this operation, um, I take full responsibility for it. I take responsibility for canceling it. I take responsibility uh, for its failure and for the loss of life. All of that is on me. I watched his apology actually on YouTube yesterday, uh, and it was really beautiful (laughs) in a climate today where leaders don't really apologize, like they don't give you a true apology. He actually apologized, um, but that doesn't really make up for the lives lost and for what would be another nine months of captivity for these U.S. citizens. Failed rescue mission, botched rescue mission. At this point in time in the development of the early church, something incredible was happening. Gentiles, people from the nations who had no business knowing anything about Christianity, are meeting Jesus, responding to the gospel, and becoming Christians. It's unbelievable. It's shocking. At the same time, God's ethnic people, the Jews, are rejecting Jesus. And so the question that Paul wants to answer in Romans 9 is the same question, actually, that a lot of us have about our relatives, our family, our friends, our children, perhaps, who are not interested in Jesus and have rejected Christianity. It's this question, has God botched his rescue plan? Has God failed to save his people? The answer is no, by the way. And that no comes to us by way of three big movements, from celebration to lamentation, from Israel to true Israel, and from love to love less. This is an outline for the sermon if you like things like that. Um, So I'm going to go ahead and start by reading Romans chapter 9, uh, and I'll just read the first five verses for now. Paul says, I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. He's saying, hey, I'm telling you the truth here. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, 
For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption to sonship. Theirs the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. So, we studied Romans 8 last year. Isn't that a beautiful noise, the noise of our children? Playing, but also learning. Okay, they're learning. Um, we studied Romans 8 last year, and as we ended that chapter, um, we heard Paul crescendo into this just uncontrollable praise where he's saying, For I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, neither angels, nor demons, neither the present, nor the future, nor any powers, neither height, nor depths, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And we say, Amen. Hallelujah, Paul. This is celebration. He's saying, Look how free and beautiful and eternal the love of God is through Jesus for people like us. It's unbelievable. Sinners are safe and secure with God. Why would anyone reject that? And yet, his own people, his fellow Jews, were doing just that. They were rejecting, and for that, Paul is perplexed, and he's heartbroken. He's he's perplexed and heartbroken. This is lamentation that we've moved from. Perplexed because these people had it all. Right? You heard what he said, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, the promises, theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. He even almost burst into celebration again there, except it's surrounded by lamentation. He's saying, of all the families of the earth, Jews, God chose you to be your, his special people. He chose to be with you. He chose to show you his glory. He made you promises. He gave you the law. He taught you. He led you. He set up a sacrificial system to work on your sin problem. And when it was time for God to put on flesh and blood, he chose to put on Jewish flesh and blood, becoming a member of your own family. And yet you reject him. One pastor tells the story of the time that he took his son to an art museum in D.C. Um, and he was really excited because he was an art geek, a little bit like me. And he goes into this gallery with his boy there. And he's just, he's like chomping at the bit to tell his son about the complexity of Picasso and the beauty of Monet or the honesty of the Dutch or Rembrandt. And he's there, and he's on the verge of tears in the middle of one of these galleries. And he looks over at his son, and his son is like, oh, Dad, I'm bored. Can we go home? Why do we have to be here? Why? Dad, I don't, I don't, let's go home, Dad. And the dad reflected later that his son was surrounded by glory, but saw none of it. He stood in the middle of wonders but was bored out of his mind. His eyes worked well, but his heart was stone blind. He saw everything, but he saw nothing. And so it is with the Jews at this point in time. They had seen everything, and yet they had seen nothing. They were right in the center of God's glorious story of salvation. 
And when Jesus comes, they couldn't be more unimpressed with him. They were lost. Just like many in our churches and in our families are perhaps lost. Many people who grew up hearing the message of Jesus, having it represented well for them, this free love and grace of God who would save and love someone like them, their response is, eh, so what? That's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking to Paul, right? I mean, look what he says in verse 3. He says that he would be willing to walk through the very gates of hell if it means that his kinsmen, his fellow Jews, would be able to walk through the gates of heaven. It's heartbreaking, but that, even that is beautiful. His heartbreak over the condition of the loss, that's beautiful. We, we actually need hearts that look a lot like that. Hearts that say, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart because there are so many people who should know Jesus that don't yet know Jesus. God, give us a heart like that. All this does bring up the, the question, why? Why is it that these people don't believe? I mean, if they were right in the middle of God's salvation plan looking at it all, why don't they believe? Has God failed? Did God botch his rescue plan? Has the eagle opened its talents and let loose its grip? Why aren't these people embracing Jesus and his good news? This is the part where we get our first peek at how the mind of God works. And in God's mind, there's a very clear distinction between Israel and true Israel. Verses 6 to 9. It is not as though God's word has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel, nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this was how the promise was stated. At the appointed time, I will return and Sarah will have a son. Did you hear what he say? Has God failed to save his people? This is what he says. It is not as though God's word had failed. Rather, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Not all of ethnic Israel is true Israel. Paul is saying that, look, you can be born in Israel, you can have Jewish parents, you can trace your bloodlines all the way back to Jacob himself, you can, uh, you can carry a Jewish passport, would have, which would have been circumcision, you can eat Jewish food, you can pray Jewish prayers, you can sing Jewish songs and act in Jewish ways, you can go to the temple and yet still not belong to true Israel. Because it is not about your DNA, physically speaking. It is not about what you do on the outside. It is all about your heart. And sometimes people think, oh, that's a new thing. That's like a New Testament thing, right? That Jesus added. No, it's, it's, it's all throughout the scriptures. It's always been about the heart. Deuteronomy 10. This is God giving the law to his people. To the Lord your God belongs the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth and everything in it. 
Yet the Lord set his affection on your ancestors and loved them. He chose you, their descendants, above all the nations as it is today. Wow. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. The maker of all things, the sustainer of all things, has chosen you, Israel, And therefore, you need to have a heart that is circumcised. The marker for belonging to true Israel is that circumcised heart. It's a heart that embraces God and his promises and lives accordingly. Israel and true Israel is another way of describing what some theologians frame as the visible church and the invisible church, okay? The visible church, well, we're looking at it right here. People in the pews. But among us, there is an invisible church, people who actually have a heart that is convicted um, and that embraces God and his promises and lives accordingly. Um, I want to show you a diagram that has been helpful for me in this conversation. It's from one of my professors, and we'll probably use it a couple times as we study the book of Romans. Um, Up here, we see how it is that an outsider becomes an insider. So an outsider becomes part of God's visible people, the visible church in our terms. And in the Old Testament, it was through circumcision. Either your own circumcision or belonging to a family that circumcised its little boys. That's how you belonged to the visible people of God, okay? But that's not enough because you need to actually belong to God's true people, true Israel as Uh, Paul is alluding to here. And the only way to go from the visible people of God to the invisible people of God is to have a heart that is circumcised. You have to have a heart that embraces God and his promises and lives accordingly. And the same is true about the New Testament people of God. We could change the words from circumcision to baptism, right? Not all baptized people are actually Christians, You need a heart that has been baptized by the Holy Spirit, meaning you need a heart that has been convicted of your sin and your desperate need for God to take away that sin through the atoning death of his son Jesus. Otherwise, it doesn't matter how churchy you look or how churchy you talk or how often you're at church or how churchy you act or pray or sing or smell. If your heart has not been changed by Jesus, then you are not a member of the invisible church, true Israel. In Paul's day, they were accusing God of failing in his rescue mission because ethnic Israel was rejecting God. Well, that must be God's fault. And Paul says, no, the reason they're rejecting God is actually because they were trying to save themselves through their good Jewish behavior. And that's actually why he mentioned Sarah in verses 8 and 9. Did you notice that? It is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this was how the promise was stated. At the appointed time, I will return and Sarah will have a son. That son is Isaac. So Hagar in this narrative, and you read it elsewhere in the New Testament, Hagar represents man's actions, man's works to bring about God's promises, right? Because Abraham and Sarah crafted this plan through Hagar to deliver the goods, the seed, Isaac, the boy that was promised to them. And Sarah, well, for Sarah to conceive, for Sarah to bear that special promised child, well, actually, it was going to take this gracious, miraculous act of God. 
It wasn't going to be because they tried really hard. No, she was really old and he was too. It was going to be because God showed up and did something that only he can do. God hasn't failed. These people have been rejecting this promise-making, promise-keeping God of the Bible all along by trusting in themselves and their own good Jewish behavior. And Paul is saying, hey, it is grace, not works. It is grace, not race. What should this do to people like us? Well, it should cause in us great reflection about ourselves, about our church, about our children, our families. None of us should assume that we are Christians just because we were born into a Christian family, okay? We shouldn't assume that people around us are Christians because they've been baptized, because they go to church, or they do churchy things. God actually has no grandchildren, only direct children. And so if there's not a heart beating in your chest of real repentance and faith, then you may not be in that inner circle. You may not belong to true Israel. And if you are bothered by that, I'm not, I'm not saying this to be mean or exclusive or judgmental. I'm saying this because if you're bothered by that, it may be that God is poking at you. And we need to have a conversation. Baxley and I are at your disposal, at your service, your elders, your deacons, other ministry leaders at this church would love to have that kind of conversation with you because we want you to belong to Jesus' true people. Celebration, lamentation, from Israel to true Israel, and now from love to love less. And buckle up, because this is the part where Romans chapter 9 starts to make us feel uncomfortable. God has not failed in his rescue mission. People were seeing the offer of Jesus, new life in Christ, and rejecting it saying, no, I'd rather it be my way. They were choosing to reject Jesus. But there is more to this story than just the Jews choosing to reject Jesus. And it's clear in this passage. And with that, I will welcome you to the great mystery of human responsibility to choose God and God's sovereign choice to elect those who will be his, to elect those who will choose him. We're going to talk more about this later, but the introduction is right here, and it is super clear, starting in verse 10. Not only that, so not only the Sarah thing, but Rebekah's children were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac, yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad in order that God's purpose and election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger." Just as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I hated. Wow. What's happening here is, is, is Paul is having some respond. Well, yeah, of course there's a difference between Isaac and Ishmael. Isaac came from Sarah, Abraham's wife, and Ishmael came from Hagar, from, from Sarah's maidservant. Paul's saying, yeah, yeah, okay, that's clear. But, but think about Jacob and Esau. They have the same mom and dad, don't they? They were twins, born moments apart. What's the difference between them? I mean, frankly, neither of them were upstanding people. Both of them did some pretty miserable things, and neither of them did anything to deserve God's favor. 
But before the twins had done anything, good or bad, God had already chosen the younger to be served by the older. He had already chosen Jacob over Esau. And we, critical thinkers we are, ask, why? And the answer is, I have no idea. I really don't. And neither do you. And some of us are thinking, well, that's not fair. That's good. You're ready for next week's sermon, which is asking this question, is God actually fair? I'll give you a spoiler alert. Uh, the, the unfair thing is actually that God loved either of these miserable guys. <laughs> that's the unfair thing. But for now, I want to address the question that is in most of our minds, which is this, why would God hate Esau? Why would he hate Esau? Why would he hate anyone? Hate is a very strong word here. It is meant to grab our attention, and it does. It has, right? But I want you to think in terms of preferential language instead of animosity. Think in terms of preferential language instead of animosity, okay? God is not showing animosity towards Esau or towards the Edomites, the people who came from Esau. Actually, God, at the end of Deuteronomy, Uh, strictly forbade that sort of thing. He says, hey, Israelites, don't hate the Edomites. They're your brothers. Don't treat them with animosity. But God did prefer Jacob over Esau. God did prefer to father the 12 tribes of Israel through Jacob, and he rejected, therefore, Esau for this honor. He chose Jacob over Esau. Jacob was more special than Esau. And that makes me uncomfortable. I assume it makes you uncomfortable too, right? And it creates a lot more questions perhaps than answers. Um, Something I found helpful as I was wrestling through this is the way Jesus uses the word hate in Luke chapter 14. So Luke 14, he's speaking to a big crowd of supposed followers, people who are with him, and he says this, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife, and children, brothers, and sisters. Yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Now, Jesus is not saying that his followers need to show animosity towards their family. No, that contradicts a ton of other stuff in the Bible. But he is calling us to love our families less than we love him. Does that make sense? He is calling us to prioritize him over our families. This is why I've called this move a move from love to love less. I don't mean the absence of love. I mean less love. Love less is not hatred. It's not the absence of love, but it is preference for one person over another person. This passage, by the way, uh, is not here primarily um, to, to uh, establish the doctrine of election or predestination. That's not its main purpose here. Its main purpose here is to answer the question we've been asking. Has God failed? Has God failed to save his people? The answer is no, because all whom God chooses to save, he effectively saves. Who does God choose to save? I have no clue. I have no idea. Frankly, I have been surprised by it my whole life. People I thought were so far gone 
embracing Jesus and following him in more devoted ways than I follow him. I have no clue who he chooses to save. This is a great mystery. All I can say is, you know what, if you find yourself here this morning with a Christian heart beating in your chest, knowing you're a sinner, knowing Jesus is your only hope, then apparently God has chosen to save you. Wow. And if you're sitting here this morning thinking, wow, that sounds really good, the eternal smile of God, how do I get that? Then God might be poking your heart, wooing you, saying, come on, come on, I've chosen you too, just just get on with it. Come to me and surrender already. And the same may be true about your children or your family or Jewish friends that you may have that have historically rejected Jesus. We simply don't know who he has chosen to save. We don't know. It's a great mystery, all of this. And so that makes us uncomfortable. Peeking into the mind of God makes us uncomfortable because we don't get it. We don't understand it. And we certainly feel out of control. But being out of control is actually a really, really good thing when it comes to salvation. You don't want your salvation to depend on you. You want it to depend on God because he's good at it. And you might mess it up. Uh, One day, Jim picked up the phone. Uh, It was his neighbor calling, and she was in crisis because her cat was missing. So actually, her cat wasn't missing. She knew where it was. It was in the backyard, but it was way up in a tree. It had been there for three days. It was cold, and it was wet, and it was hungry, and it was tired, and it was afraid, and it wasn't going to come down on its own power. So Jim with some other neighbors, planned this great rescue mission. He climbs the ladder. He gets to the top. The cat was not happy to see him, to put it lightly. Um, The cat was rather aggressive. So the only way that Jim could save this cat was to take a towel and to put it over the cat's head so the cat couldn't see what was happening. And for Jim to very carefully, each paw by paw, remove the claws that the cat had dug into the side of that tree, put it in his arms, bring it down, and give it back to its owner. That is how God's salvation works. That's actually how your salvation works. Jesus lovingly climbed the tree of Calvary, lovingly climbed to the top of the cross to take us down off of it, because let me tell you, we should have paid for our own sins. He said, no, I'll do it. He didn't come and say, hey, let me make sure you're okay with this. Let me just make sure you know exactly how my salvation plan works so you understand everything about the mind of God. No, he didn't consult us. It also wasn't the sort of thing where we got to high-five Jesus, where it's like, you gave 50% Jesus and I gave 50% Jesus. That's actually an early church heresy. No, Jesus had to do it all. That's how bad we were, and that is how good he is. Our salvation depends on him. Otherwise, we would still have our claws dug into the things that we think will actually save us, and we would be in deep, deep danger. He did it all. Anyone God has set his mind on saving, he will save, period. He never fails. And he He values you and your salvation so much that he would do it all himself. He's big. We're small. He knows we don't. He's good. We're not nearly good enough. He never 
fails. We often fail, and so we trust. Lord, that's what we're asking. We're asking for hearts that trust even in areas where we feel out of control, even in areas where we don't understand and we really, really, really want to understand. When you blow up our categories, help us to trust you, that you know what you're doing, that you're powerful, and that you are good to people like us. Lord, make us a people who trust you. And would that even be something that the world sees, seeds that are planted in their hearts, that they too would want to trust you? pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to support the ministry of UCB, please visit our website at ucbogota.org.